Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Nina Kennedy is one of those people that the more you know about her, the more you want to know. Our interview earlier about her book, Practicing for Love, a memoir, opened the door, and today we delve deeper. Nina personifies intersectionality. A child of the South, raised in the shadow of a legendary Fisk Jubilee choir, an African-American prodigy in a white world, classically trained in European greats such as Liszt and Rachmaninoff, but able to get down in a hip-hop world, a woman in a man's world, a poet, an author, a filmmaker, a talk show host, and so much more. She's back to share more about her remarkable life. With three more books in the works, This will hardly be our last conversation. Nina, welcome back to Collections by Michelle Brown. Well, I'm back here talking with Nina Kennedy. And Nina, I'll tell you, the last time I was in New York, one of the biggest disappointments was I I didn't get to hear you read your poetry. And, I mean, which is like to me, the icing on top of the cake of everything else you do. Um, how did that go? Oh, it was great. We really had a good time. I was really just reading uh, passages from the book. And, oh, okay. um, yeah, it's funny. I don't set up to write poetry, but somehow, you know, it inevitably happens. Like there's mm-hmm. some passages, you know, some dialogues that really have that uh, poetic rhythm. So uh, it was a fun evening. A lot of women performers, and we were up on the roof out in Brooklyn. So we mm. really had a good time. Wow, wow. But, you know, I think that there's, there's a rhythm, do you know what I mean, that you get like mm-hmm. from music and poetry, and then when you're writing, that sometimes that beat, you know, it's a beat. It's like a special heartbeat, a special pulse beat that you have that carries mm-hmm. over into everything that you do. Do you find that happening mm-hmm. sometimes? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And especially in the passage that I wrote about um, some women I met in, in Nashville who, you know, they weren't part of the academic community. Uh, one, you know, sold her body sometimes for certain extra money. Mm-hmm. And the, the sing-song dialogue, 
I really tried to recreate uh, in, in as authentic a way as I could because their speech was so different from what I normally heard. You know, I, my parents mm-hmm. didn't speak that way. I wasn't allowed to speak that way. But um, the, the way they talked to each other, it was really, it, it sounded poetic to me, so I hope I gave it the uh, the credit it deserved. You know, I, I can relate to that because when I was reading your book and you were also talking about how there is one way that you would talk when you were out with your friends and with this group, and then when there's another way that when you got home, you wouldn't even begin to think about it. And, you know, mm-hmm. I can relate with that. Like, my, my parents were about, about, you know, speaking properly and everything. But I also mm-hmm. find, especially as I've, you know, gotten out in the world, I grew up and I met people, that black people, we have a cadence. We have a certain natural rhythm. That, you know, mm-hmm. we were always told something was wrong with it, so we had to speak the quote-unquote king's English or queen's English and sort right. of like there's something wrong with that. But that is that is so much up. I mean, even when you get into church where you have the call and response and there's just something about that that that's a part of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And we have to be able to adjust. I, I can understand some parents wanting their kids to speak in a way that's going to, you know, help them get the job down the line. You know, uh-huh. they uh, there's pressure put on them to not be themselves in a mm-hmm. way. And, uh, and other groups don't have that experience of having to assimilate so completely to the point of denying the truth of who you are mm-hmm. and what your history has been. So I really wanted to... Uh, to make sure that these voices were heard in uh, in my literature and to to make the speech as, as realistic as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, you were code switching before code switching was cool, you know? You, right. had, you, know, you had, I mean, because you walked so many different paths, you had the way that you had to talk when you were at school, the way you had to talk mm-hmm. when you were at home, the way you talked when mm-hmm. you were, you were, you know, with your friends. And now, doesn't it feel good to just like, just, I mean, I watch you, like you've done things with, with, with rap artists, you, po- you do poetry, you're reading some of your books. Does it feel good now to, to just be able to like not switch hats, but just like throw them all up in the air and whatever one lands on your head, just talk it? <laughs> yes. And I'm lucky I've had the experience to, um, to travel abroad and uh, make friends internationally. And here in the States, I I feel pretty privileged to be able to speak the King's English correctly. And um, it's not a struggle for me. It's just this this is the way I was raised to speak. But when I left the country, I was struggling. Mm. I was the one making all of the grammatical errors and stumbling through pronunciation and making mistakes. It was such a good experience for me to have because it it helped me understand that these friends I was talking to, they really just wanted to understand me. You know, they weren't critiquing my grammar or judging my speech. And, you know, my mother was a very judgmental woman. And mm-hmm. there were times when I just wouldn't talk because in response, I would just get some kind of criticism about what I had just said. 
and and she had given me the impression that people were always judging me based on my speech. And then to have the total opposite experience and to be abroad and, you know, to be struggling with speech and uh, not having any judgment, you know, just mm-hmm. seeing the approval and the willingness to understand and to corroborate, corroborate what I was saying. It was really, it, it was a wonderful experience. I, I would recommend it to anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, because often that's, that it is, you know, and, and and sometimes it is. You go someplace else and they just want to hear what you have to say. And, you know, I've right. often told people even when, uh, like, you're like, well, they are afraid to do public speaking because what if I make a mistake? I said, well, sometimes you have to realize people, there's something about you that people just want to hear, you know? Yeah. And sometimes we're harder on ourselves about the mistakes. Did you find that because your mother could teach you often that sometimes you could teach yourself? Like you heard maybe it was you speaking her voice saying, no, Nina, don't do that. You know, you're going to mess up or they'll be looking at me for this or, or like that. Yeah, on a on a subconscious level, I think that was always there, and and especially with the kids at school, a lot of the kids um, resented the way I spoke. You know, mm-hmm. they they certainly uh, bullied me for it um, mm-hmm. in groups, but then there mm-hmm. were times privately when um, they would come up to me and and ask me for advice on homework or ask me to help them with with uh with writing sentences so it uh it, w- it was clearly a group thing uh-huh. when they uh they wanted to make me feel bad about the way I spoke and and that's where the code switching began you know it spoke one way at school and then uh, a totally different way at home mm-hmm. yeah, no but now you mean you seem comfortable with so many people is that in part from the confidence you got when you went abroad and, like, people just wanted to hear you and you were able to just sort of, like, let it all all out? Mm-hmm. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I don't have any, any siblings. I'm an only child. So yeah. I spent, you know, most of my, uh, my formative years alone. But mm-hmm. it also created a need for a connection. You know, I really mm-hmm. felt like I'd, I'd spent enough time by myself. So mm-hmm. I really uh, went out of my way to make friends and to understand other people and to try to get uh, a grasp on their their points of view and to um, to really be a, a comrade in uh, mm-hmm. whatever the culture might be or whatever language is being spoken. Mm-hmm. Now you know, as you're talking about, uh, you know, and how you were. You're at the piano from a very early age. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, like, there's some points of me that go like, oh, they should have let that baby play and have, and have fun <laughs> and, and, and do all this stuff, you know, just ripping, running and, you know, just being a kid. But mm-hmm. that, that playing the piano is you. That's who you are and what you did. Do you have mm-hmm. any regrets about not having a siblings or being able to just go and, you know, not today, no piano, I'm riding my bike, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I definitely did not have a normal childhood. And, um, you know, so much of 
of those social skills that you need to acquire in childhood, I just, I just missed, you know, I missed learning how to negotiate, you know, how to argue or fight, you know, there I'm, um, some people think I'm a passive person because I don't feel the need to engage in arguments, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it doesn't mean that I've, you know, that I have no opinion. I'll just keep it to myself. <laughs> Because I don't want things to escalate, you know. But um, I think that skill has all also helped me uh, assimilate in other cultures and to understand um, other other points of view. It's, it's very important to be able to to listen, you know, to where other people are coming from, and not feel that you have to force your point of view onto everyone else. You know, every everyone has has something to say. You know, that's so important because I don't even, I, you know, I may be that sister you didn't know you had. I don't, uh, <laughs> they'll say, you know, how can, and I said, I'm listening because I'm trying mm-hmm. to hear what someone is saying so that then mm-hmm. when I do reply, it's, you know, it's not so much measured, but it, it gets to the point because sometimes people say, say a whole lot to get to what the point is, what's bothering them. And also, you know, and is it worth arguing? (laughs) Right. Um, Right. Because it sounds to me that often in your life, I mean, as you went to school and you were in Juilliard, I mean, everywhere you went, you had to pick your battles wisely. How did you I mean, you know, and like, how did you draw the line as to, what was Nina's line in the sand? What was the compromises you were going to make as far as um, your career? And then about finding your place. Mm-hmm. Well, when I got to Juilliard, I really wasn't prepared for uh, the level of racism I would face mm-hmm. in the classical music field. I mean, I, I came from the South there I guess I had the feeling that once I got away from the South, it would no longer be an issue. And when I got to Juilliard and I'm dealing with international forces, and uh, in some cases the, the sexism was more potent than the racism was. Mm-hmm. Um, it was amazing to me just watching these men, you know, getting together socially outside of uh outside of the institution going out for drinks and you know watching them becoming colleagues and work partners you know into their careers and uh, mm-hmm. just feeling like an an outsider in that whole mm-hmm. realm and uh, I really didn't know of other females who were able to penetrate that glass ceiling where uh, where classical music is concerned I mean still to name me one woman conductor who has an international career, you know, and the conductors are the ones who make the decisions in terms of what repertoire is performed, what composers' works are heard, you know, which soloists are hired. So it made sense to me to just um, enroll in the conductor's program while I was there. But um, I had no idea that um, that was that was a pretty closed door at that time. There, there are a lot mm-hmm. more women conductors who are coming along now and uh, they have much more opportunity than I did when I was first getting out of school. I remember reading how you said, 
like you had, um, prepare, you're preparing your repertoire, and there are pieces that you want to perform, and they were like, well, no, 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 that's not what women do, you know. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and I mean, which is like, that shows that intersectionality. You know, you and I both know that there will be things that people go like, they'll look at you as a, a black woman and go like, you know that, you know. Right. You know, <laughs> okay, but to have someone, I mean, and you might have been prepared for that. You know, you might have been prepared mm-hmm. for this. You might have said, I'm going to show them. I know, I know you know, I'm a, I've got to know this. I'm doing it. But to have someone go like, well, no, women don't play that. I mean, that just right. has to be like, like, you know, what the hell? Yeah, exactly. And they want you to wear these little frilly dresses and mm-hmm. play Mozart or play Schubert. And it, that wasn't my repertoire. I was bringing out the big guns, the Rachmaninoff and the Chopin mm-hmm. and... Some of these men were were really threatened. It was almost as if they were threatened by the notion that a woman could experience that level of passion that some of those pieces called for. And mm-hmm. some of them must have thought that, you know, this is just uh, a realm that's reserved for men. Men are supposed mm-hmm. to, to experience all the passion and the woman is just supposed to lie there and take it. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was like going against all of their strongly held convictions. You know, I, I made quite a few of them uncomfortable. I see that now. I didn't realize it at the time. But, uh, you know, I was just trying to show my chops, you know, show them what I could mm-hmm. do. And yeah, sure, I love Mozart, but if if I'm auditioning for something and you really need to see what I'm capable of, I'm going to hit you with that Rachmaninoff, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To show that you can do everything, that, you know. I mean, you came to play. You didn't come to, to you right. know, like and, you know, tickle the ice, Just a you know, be cute. Dally, you came right. to play, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. So not so when you got up and left, they said, not only is she black, she's a woman. Oh my God, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see that it how, you know, you know now. I mean, and we can intellectualize how threatening that must have been, but. Did you ever really think that, like, okay, you know, when you got ready to go in, did you have to, like, sort of, like, you know, t- take that deep breath and say, okay, I'm going in here. Yeah, they're going to look at my black face and think one thing, and then I'm going to go down here, and I know, you know, it's going to be a tough look. Some are just going to hate me just because, and some just aren't going to know what to do with me. Right, right. Well, there again, I didn't know at the time. Um, how much uh, some of these conductors and artist management were concerned about their funding sources. And mm-hmm. uh, these can be some very old, conservative, right-wing mm-hmm. circles who are are not looking for <laughs> for someone mm-hmm. to break glass ceilings or, uh, you know, to to um, be outside of the lines of uh, the stereotypes. And um, I, I wish someone had prepared me for that in advance because I just really, I wasn't prepared for it at all. I just thought, okay, all I have to do is is hone my craft and show them my chops and just do my best work, you know, and surely it's going to result in some some uh, great contract or a prize or, you know, this, mm-hmm. I, I, I really was naive when it came mm-hmm. to these things. But, um, yeah, luckily things are 
things are changing. You know, the Metropolitan Opera finally produced its first opera composed by a black man. And mm-hmm. um, how long did it take them? <laughs> I know mm-hmm. they had uh, produced an opera composed by a white woman uh, early in the 20th century, but it took them this long to finally, um, you know, uh, cater to the black audience. And I'm not so sure this would have happened if it hadn't been for COVID, because they were mm-hmm. desperate for an audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a lot of their uh, their funders, you know, the, this is the elderly crowd. Some of them may not have made it through COVID. So they mm-hmm. had to come up with some new ideas and uh, some creativity. And um, that resulted in fire shut up in my bones. Mm-hmm. So uh, hopefully things are going in the right direction. Let's Let's pray for the day when we finally hear a mm-hmm. black woman's story told on mm-hmm. the Metropolitan Opera stage. Because you know this was Charles Blow's memoir that was uh, mm-hmm. that was turned into the libretto for the opera. Mm-hmm. You know it's funny because you know from that generation, and you and I are, are around the same age. You know, and they always you always heard that you know how as black people we're supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we we had to be better than than the rest. But even mm-hmm. doing all of that, you know there were these walls that that Mm -hmm. stopped us, you know. And like you said, when is it going to be there? And also, when will we acknowledge that, you know, that's our place. That's our place. That's where we're supposed to be, you know. And, you know, where I know I have friends who have never been to, you know, you say, well, come on, you should go to, to see, you know, the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. In fact, one weekend they had a, um, well, they had a, a guest conductor who was black. It was, of course, during Black History Month, you know, when, mm-hmm. they, had, when they have certain black things, you know. And it was like, I said, well, you should go. And uh, we, we had to show up. And it was like, oh, I don't know about all that. And the thing that was sad was there was only like a handful of us in the audience. Yeah, mm. and supporting and doing it. And I um that was like I had a friend who was like a friend of my mother's who was one of the last friends of my mother's who's still alive, who happens to be over a hundred now. And she mm. sang with the Brazil Denard choir. And they were all black. And that mm. day this guy I mean and they had they have younger people now, but they had just like like maybe five who were like of the old school. And they came out, and, you know, when he got ready to sing, play, uh, conduct, lift every voice, and they brought these five little old people out there. And I'm going like, wow, wow, what a moment that is for them to be on the stage in orchestra hall with a black conductor singing something that they've been singing like in churches and this and that, you know. And, they, I mean, you saw them all rise up. And it's like, you know, that's our history. And mm-hmm. that was the other thing that you introduced me to. I did not know about the Fifth Jubilee Choir. Well, I'm not from, I mean, I mean, I'm from Detroit, you know. And mm-hmm. it made me want to go and hear about that. And there's, you know, you don't have to be from that to get that that feeling, do you know what I mean? It's right. something that touches right. you deep in your soul, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Metropolitan Opera is really coming after us because they're also doing this big production of Porgy and Bess again. Mm. Mm-hmm. And there, there are a lot of black folks who just had enough of Porgy and Bess. I mean, this is this is an opera written by a white man. You know, his impression of African American life in South Carolina. But you know, this is the one production that gives a bunch of us work. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us are just waiting for the next production of Porgy and Bess, and. And I know so many black opera singers and students who, you know, they didn't go to conservatory just to sing Porgy and Bess for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it's a, a great opportunity for work, but, you know, get, they could do Mozart, you know, give, mm-hmm. them, give them a Puccini opera, give them a Wagner opera. I mean, we know we've had a few opera stars who've been able to break through that glass ceiling, but... There's so many more who just aren't getting those opportunities unless Porgy and Bess is coming along. And now there's at least there's fire shut up in my bones, but the uh, the Met is really, you know, they're going after the, the black audience hard. Mm-hmm. And um they're uh they're coming out, you know, they're they're buying the tickets and, and filling up the hall and you know, they're I'm sure they're wishing that they had uh tried to court this audience earlier mm-hmm. than now mm-hmm. and it's sad it's sad to think that a pandemic it takes a pandemic to make people reach out to us and that's that's really unfortunate you know i've, I've had the experience of, of that world being closed to me as a classical artist but now that i'm writing i'm finding a similar situation you mm. know a lot of these these writers organizations and these editors and these people writing articles about the Jubilee Singers. I mean, they're all white. Mm-hmm. And how do you penetrate that? You know, it's just, it's constant. It is a constant struggle to break through these all-white organizations. And they don't see anything wrong with being all-white and keeping black writers out or black musicians out. It's, uh, it's, it's really a lot. It's really a lot. And, I mean, I'm at the point where I'm feeling like I need to spend some more time in Europe. Because these people are just getting on my nerves. I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> uh, I bet you. Well, we're going to take our, our, our first break, but I have to tell you my one Porgy and Beth story. Um, I, it was on TV. We were watching it on TV. And the only thing that I could remember was a song about a redheaded woman, and that was why the first time I dyed my hair red. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, wow, I want to have that. you know. But, but it is how non-black people who want to tell our stories. And right. you know what? They can't. So we're going right. to take a break, and, and I want to talk, get back on that about your writing. So we'll be right back. Okay. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. 
And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown with my guest, Nina Kennedy. Nina, I mean, you introduced me to the Fisk Jubilee Singers. And you know how we talk about how we how we live. My mother was born in Detroit. I was born in Detroit. I mean, I think I was grown before I went to Atlanta, you know, and that was my first <laughs> visit to the South. And... When you talked about that, I was going, wow, let me look at that. Look at it. Look at this. Because just as you were saying, a lot of my ideals of things that happened in the South, like Corgi and Beth, or what you would see people singing was created and shaped by people who weren't black, who didn't mm-hmm. have lived it, didn't talk about the intensity uh, the spirituality, the part of community that it had. And it's amazing to me that you are a child of the Fisk Jubilee Singers in more ways than one. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, if anybody's supposed to write the book about it, it's you. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, I put a lot of that history in my book, I um, it it really distressed me when I was going around with my uh, my documentary film, mm-hmm. um, taking it to the public schools and uh, showing it to the kids, and how many black kids I came across who had never heard of the Six Jubilee Singers, and mm-hmm. this was something that that clearly just was not being taught in the public school, schools. And I've learned a, a lot more recently about. Um, how the decisions are made, you know, uh, about which subjects get into the the textbooks and which don't. And these are here again, a bunch of white people deciding Mm -hmm. on what black children should learn about. And this especially is a situation where black teachers just need to to step in and uh, take this on, you know, as... um, as, as their work, because the, the school boards are just not, they don't have our interest at heart. Mm-hmm. You know, the school boards are not concerned about whether or not these black kids are reflected in the material that they're being taught. You know, they have their narrow version of history, and they, they want to stress how we were brought here as slaves, and, you know, you're not really supposed to aspire to, to be much more than that. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. really, it's heartbreaking to me to see how these kids just, you know, they're, we're failing them by not get, giving them all of this information. And, and Michelle, you should see how their eyes just light up when I show this film and they're so full of questions afterwards. And I show them these old pictures of the Jubilee Singers. They just celebrated their 150th anniversary this year. They were founded in, in 1871. And this is just, you know, just six years after slavery. The uh, Fisk University, well, the Free Fisk Colored School, it was called when it was founded by the American Missionary Association, was founded in 1866. So a year after the war. And, and this was a time when, you know, it had been illegal for slaves to read and write for centuries. So the Fisk mm-hmm. Free Colored School, school set out to, to educate uh, the formerly enslaved of all ages, 
So there were like 10-year-olds sitting next to 80-year-olds, you know, uh, all adults needing to learn supposedly to read and write. Now, some of them were doing it illegally and um, were able to, to contribute toward the education of some of their colleagues. But this, you know, this is an incredible history that young people need to know. And the music that they are responsible for, you know, the, the Fifth Jubilee Singers are really the source of virtually all forms of American music. They were just, they were superstars in the 19th century. I mean, the fact that Queen Victoria herself would commission this larger-than-life-size painting of this group, and this painting had to get across the Atlantic and then to Fisk University in Nashville. This is national news. And recently, the, the press has just tried to sweep it under the rug. They, they don't want these young people knowing about this history. And it's, uh, it's really a shame. Yeah, and you hear like people are talking about, you know, oh, well, you know, they want to wipe all that out. But unfortunately, many of our young people, you know, they see the things that they want to show them about slavery. They want to mm-hmm. show us as weak, as um, not literate, of not being able yes. to accomplish. Like you said, the queen had this picture painted of them. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is like, and how many years, and that we didn't, you know, just, come out of slavery and wander around that many of us had not and learned how to read and then we taught each other. I you know, and that's the thing, that's you right. know, that we don't we know it's like we didn't have to go and wait for for them to to teach us. We want we were there, we were you know, we had to be smart to survive slavery and do all the trades right. and things that we did. And, you know, I mean, it's just amazing to me because I know one time after after you opened my eyes, and it was funny, to the Fifth Jubilee Singers, I have friends who are from the South who said, oh, yeah, you didn't know about them? I said, no, they didn't teach us that in school. Right. You know, right. They didn't teach us that in school. And if they, they showed black people singing, it was like in a, a minstrel show, you know. Right. You know, right. And... And then the early part of the 20th century, those were a lot of white people in blackface mm-hmm. doing those mm-hmm. minstrel shows. It was supposedly mm-hmm. very popular, you know, the most popular form of entertainment. White people doing their their fantasy of what black life was like. Yeah. And like you said, and again, you know, there, there it is, white people saying what black life looked like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and here are people who, I mean, and, you know, they had instruments, they lost, and they sang acapella. They came out and they did this, you know. But right. the fact that that's not being taught in all these schools. In fact, I was at someone, we have a school here that's known for the arts and everything, and I was talking to one of the musical directors. I asked her about them, she didn't know. And then, of course, I had to segue into, you know, put on my fan club hat. And I said, you know, I just finished talking to Lina Kennedy, you know, and you need to read her book and go and see what this woman does. And I told her about, you know, all the struggles you had had, you know, being judged not only because you were black, but really because you were a woman, going all over. And she was like, you know, it's like her eyes. This is someone whose career is in music. 
And and it was mm-hmm. like, well, yeah, I guess that's so. I know. Uh, and I said, if you had known about her, and I'm not knocking being a teacher, okay, would, but would mm-hmm. you have wanted to try to be something more than a music teacher? If you had known that this woman had, had stood up to the fire and, and persevered and kept doing and was able to, you know, she might not be Beyonce, but hey, she's <laughs> Nina Kennedy. <laughs> she's Nina Kennedy, you know. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's really. Mhm. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just like amazing to me that this is somebody who was in music, who had been limited by the shell they had put around her being a black person in music. Right. Right. I mean, a lot of people don't know that uh, Nina Simone initially had wanted to be a a classical pianist. Mm -hmm. That was what she set out to do. And she was incredibly talented. And she came with her family to to Philadelphia to audition at the Curtis Institute of Music. And uh, Marian Anderson had been in Philadelphia. So there there was a, a strong black community supporting classical artists. And um, they wouldn't accept her. Hmm. She was not allowed to study. And uh, eventually she came up here to New York and did some uh, some work at the Juilliard Institute back then. But um, people don't know this. You know, when when I talk about the the Sister Billy singers, I did a I did an article for my uh, my blog. Um, uh, the Sister Billy singers celebrate 150 years, and. <clears throat> I talk about Ella Shepard, who was really the matriarch of that original group that set out on that first fundraising tour in 1871. And here, this was a woman who was born on Andrew Jackson's plantation. Mm. She had studied music, and her father had been able to purchase his own freedom and her freedom. Her father was related to um, Andrew Jackson. I think it was he was descended from Jackson's brother. So this was like in the 1850s, right before the war hit. And he just had to leave the plantation and he wanted to take his family, his wife and his daughter. Well, the slave owner wouldn't even allow him to take his own wife to mm-hmm. the north to escape slavery. So, and eventually Ella Shepard's mother was sold to a plantation in Mississippi. I mean, it's just, it's a heartbreaking story. But when you think but here this man, a slave, had to purchase his freedom and his daughter's freedom. This is money that's going in to Andrew Jackson's pocket. Mm. And when you think of the numbers of enslaved Africans who were enriching these white men to purchase their freedom, you know, mm-hmm. think what that has done to us economically. You know, no, no they're, they, they don't have a chance to take this money and help set up their new lives, you know, in freedom. Uh, in fact, Ella Shepard's father took her to uh, Ohio to escape rape, race riots that were going on in Nashville. And to think, if they hadn't had to spend these thousands of dollars to purchase themselves, you know, what that would have meant to be able to start a new life, to have control of that money. And the reality 
that this money was going into the pockets of slave owners. This is a history that certain people don't want us to know. Certain people like Mitch McConnell, who thinks mm-hmm. it's, his, it's his job to keep this history from coming out, to keep people from realizing just how brutalized African-Americans have been. The, the, the sharecropping that took place immediately after the war. You know, these people were never able to get out of debt. They found themselves owing their crops and their interest in the land to, their, to the landowners for the rest of their lives. It was just slavery under another name. And then and here comes the prison industrial complex. Uh-huh. I mean, it's just one institution after another designed to keep African-Americans impoverished. I mean, it, it's and just know, incredible to me. And, you know, and, and you hear people say that, oh, well, that was in the past, but it's not. I mean, even the whole tip system was based on the Jim Crow, where they said, well, why should we pay, pay, pay blacks, you know, a fair wage? You know, make them earn it, you know. So they had to so mm-hmm. we had to, And you still have most people who are working in these jobs for tips and not making a living wage are black mm-hmm. and brown people. So, right. I mean, so, and I you know I've heard, you know, people say, oh, well, you shouldn't teach that. It'll make people feel bad. Well, you know, you should feel bad, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not blaming anyone, but you cannot understand a structure that's made to keep a race of people and continues to and for and it continues to be run by you know a lot of it is institutionalized but it's made to keep a class particularly a race but also a class of people down which you know you talk mm-hmm. about you know the, the the beauty of America and why you come and everybody can do this and that but no you have a structure that's based on racism, and, right. and you know, and they and they did it. And oh, now who's going to be the next slave? And even to the point where it keeps us down today. And if you don't understand it, you can't deconstruct racism if you don't understand racism. Right. Look at how desperately they're trying to keep us from voting. Thank you. To this day, I mean, they are, they are paranoid, they're running scared, and the past president just brought all of these cretins out from the rocks they were hiding under, and mm-hmm. they are just, they're out of control. They're mm-hmm. out of control. We need some really strong leadership to combat this, because they're, they're not hiding under sheets anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now they're wearing suits, and they're probably, you know, <laughs> sitting there saying, like, you know, on Facebook, you know, on Facebook, on mm-hmm. Twitter, on Instagram, and you know what? And they're saying it, and they believe it. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. it. They're saying it, they believe it, and they're passing it down to their kids because right. their kids. I was I was at a community college, and that was not in the heart, you know, where our Southeast Michigan, where most black people are. It was out, and there was a young white girl who had a kid without being married, and she was talking about, you know, and she had a job. only thing she could find was at McDonald's, but somehow or other, she looked down. She said, well, at least I'm not, like, down there in Detroit where, you know, like somehow or other, 
black people, we, we were all on welfare. We were somehow be, being given an advantage that was somehow holding her back. And I'm hmm. going, you know, you know, I'm like, how is it holding you back? Well, my father says, you know, that if all of them weren't on welfare, and I'm going to, you know what, your father's first of all stupid, you know, <laughs> and they are, but for the grace of melanin and being named Shaniqua, go you, you know. <laughs> and, and, she, and she just sort of looked at me like, you know, how dare you say my, but my, my dad said that if, and she was getting ready to do her first vote, and this was like in 2016, and she did not see all the other, the many reasons how voting for Trump was voting against her own best interest because her father had told her that if he brought it back to the good old days, that her life would be better. Wow. Some of these people, I think they just never got over Barack Obama being in the White House. Mm-hmm. And they're still, you know, still seeking revenge for that. You know, it's almost like they tell themselves, like you said, as long as as long as I'm not black, then I'm superior to somehow. And mm-hmm. the Obamas made them realize, oh, okay, there's some black people who are smarter than you, and who've had more education than you, you know, and who deserve nicer things than you have. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. some of them just can't cope with it. You know, if they've told themselves all their lives and their fathers have told them that this is what you are and this is what they are and they just can't come to grips with it. It's really mm-hmm. sad. It's really sad. And and what do they have? Like uh, Toni Morrison said, what do they have other than being white? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's all they got. That's it. That's it, you know. Yeah, Yeah. we've got a lot of work to do. Do you find, because the Fisk Jubilee Singers, I mean, that that will forever course through your veins. And even though you've Mm -hmm. done many things and you've traveled and done that, is that why, I mean, you are passionate about black history and about our accomplishments. Do you think that even though you've seen... So much where many people, you know, they go and ride. I'm not going to think about that anymore. But that still courses through your veins, and that's a big mm-hmm. passion that you have. Is that why? Um. Yes. Yes. I mean, mm-hmm. I I watched my my parents work with the Jubilee Singers. My father had had served as director from 1957 to 1986. And my mother was the uh, the piano accompanist, and she had been the piano accompanist under their previous director, John W. Work III. She went with that group to Europe in the 1950s. And even before then, my maternal grandmother sang with a group of Jubilee singers um, in Europe in 1900. In fact, I, I found a, a suitcase of her letters to her parents in Ohio while she was on that tour in the United Kingdom, and this is from 1900 to 1903. So she was there for the death of Queen Victoria. She witnessed the coronation of Edward VII, and she was documenting all of this in in these these letters. Her English was immaculate. 
Her handwriting was immaculate. And when I found a suitcase, it was just like, okay, this is a forthcoming book. Her her perspective, you know, a young Uh black girl, she was only 19 in uh, in 1900. And her perspective, the way she writes about seeing London for the first time and such a big city and how the people were so nice to her and the group and people wanted to have them in their homes. And when they went out like into Ireland and Scotland, some people would just start following them on the streets you know, giving them flowers. They'd never seen black people before. Mm. These people were so dignified and their their clothing was top quality. And, and some of these whites are just, you know, they bent over backwards to host this group while they were there. And she said at one point in her letters that the only whites who had problems with, with them were the Americans who were staying in the hotels in London. Mm. You know, the the real Europeans didn't have a problem. Uh-huh. So that, that tells you a lot right there about what's lacking in terms of uh, uh, national identity where white Americans are concerned. You know, they just want to keep it all to themselves and not let any other group be a part of this this quilt that uh, that is the United States of America. So, yes, that, that book will definitely be coming soon. It's, um, mm-hmm. there, there are two more I have to get out before that one comes, but uh-huh. that's, uh, that's definitely going to be a, a part of the, um, the libraries for young black kids because this is also history they, they need to see. Mm-hmm. Now, practicing for love, to mm-hmm. me, a lot of it was like, it was a memorable, it was a coming out story. It was a story, a coming of age story. There were mm-hmm. things that I could relate to, you know, I could see you, I could feel you, even if it wasn't something that I had directly experienced, it was something that I understood intimately what you were going through. And mm-hmm. even as you were were coming out and, I mean, there's so many parts of that book that I, I just absolutely loved. What has happened since practicing for love? Uh, what is well, for that? Yes, the next uh, the next book, Practice What You Preach, is on its way uh-huh. any uh-huh. minute. <laughs> waiting, uh-huh. I hear there's a a backlog in uh, in printing with a uh-huh. lot of the uh, the publishing companies. But any minute, it's hopefully keep my fingers crossed. It'll be here in time for the holidays. But uh-huh. and practicing for love, it um, was nominated for uh, a Lambda. Literary award. It's it's a land uh-huh. literary finalist. Uh-huh. So that that was exciting, and it's up for a couple of uh, a couple more awards before the end of the year. So that kind of you know it it validated me as an author. I really I wasn't uh-huh. expecting you know even to be nominated, and uh, to have this this highly respected literary organization you know, um, acknowledge my work. It was really, really gratifying. So the next book, Practice What You Preach, I can tell you uh, a little bit about that one. It's um, It continues um, uh-huh. at the point where Practicing for Love ended, uh, continues with uh, my time in New York, and then quite some time in Europe. I'm spending um, several years in uh, in 
Cologne and Vienna and Paris. And this was around the time when I was um, producing this documentary on my father and his work with uh-huh. the Jubilee Singers. So I go into the, a lot of detail around the actual production of the film and taking the film to film festivals and my experience as a producer with um, some of the white staff at the editing house in, uh, in Nashville, um, that was a real learning experience because some of these, you know, the, we were the only black people who would come into this place. The only other black people working there were the maids and janitors. And there were times when I, as the producer, had say over what took place in the editing process, but some of these white people just didn't hear me. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I learned very well to just keep repeating myself until it was heard. And, and I couldn't afford, you know, to get angry or throw any tantrums or alienate anybody. I just I wanted to get the project done, and I needed to do whatever I had to do to make sure that, that I was heard. And, you know, for some people, they needed to feel like they came up with the idea. And that's okay. That's okay. You need to feel that that's mm-hmm. what happened. Go ahead. Fine. Just just do it. <laughs> just get it done. And uh, yeah, that was a real experience. So there's a lot you of know detail. How you you yeah. know how when you were talking about how when you were writing, <laughs> how writing as a black woman writing, and you know how sometimes the industry wants to say this is how it looks. Here you're telling the story about your dad. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. You want to say. Kennedy, last name Kennedy, I came from him, you know, you know him intimately. You were, there are things about him that you saw as you put this together. Mm-hmm. And you're the producer and you're saying that there are some of them are going to go in and try and tell you, you know, oh, well, did they try to tell you, well, this will play well? And, but you knew in your heart what you wanted it to say. Mm-hmm. How did you ne- negotiate that? I mean, what wasn't negotiable, and what compromises were you willing to make to get it done? Yeah, well, I I think uh, a lot of my strengths came out in this uh, in this process because the point was to be functional, you know, to get mm-hmm. it done, whatever it, whatever it took, and. Um, there were times when you could see that the staff was just tired. They just didn't want to be bothered taking mm-hmm. that extra step or just putting in that one little extra second or, you know, cutting that one little clip. You know, some of them just, you know, they they tried to ignore me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there was one incident where, you know, my father was, was still alive then when we were actually editing and he was coming in to the editing sessions and there was one uh clip that we we had to to have an act an actress do a voice over and the script that she ended up using was was incorrect and then my my father wrote another script and that was just totally off base mm-hmm. <laughs> and the man the man was in his 80s at that point and um, but the staff, you know, they saw him as the man, so 
they went along with what he said. And then when I got back and I found out, because I was still, I was traveling back and forth between uh, Paris and Nashville. And when I found out that this, this had been done, and then I asked around, you know, trying to find out who was responsible for this, you know, who decided that <laughs> he would have the say over what went into the script. And I just, I just made it very clear, look, I'm writing the checks for this project. You <laughs> need to go through me. <laughs> and if this happens again, I'm taking this somewhere else. And then that that really got got their attention. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I think they were just used to just taking it for granted that a woman isn't going to make these kinds of demands, you know, or I just didn't care so much. It just, it went against their whole idea of what it meant to be a black American. We had very specific ideas about what this was supposed to consist of. And some of them just, I guess, didn't want to believe that we knew what we were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're always thinking that they know better. Mm-hmm. So, so what did you say to your dad? <laughs> <laughs> I, I said to him, you need to, you need to check with me first. Because he wrote down some, some dates and, information that just wasn't correct and I wasn't going to have that in my film <laughs> you know it's got to be right because you know they're going to jump up on uh, jump on any any errors that you have mm-hmm. or, or anything that's incorrect they're going to jump all over it and try to discredit it and discount it and we know this so mm-hmm. it's got to be as as close to perfect as we can get it so uh mm-hmm. Yeah, de- dealing with him was a challenge also. That's, that's another story <laughs> I go into in, in the book, um, mm-hmm. dealing with him. Well, he was quite elderly at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I can't wait to read that part because one time I was working someplace and I made the mistake of letting someone hire my father. And you know how that went. <laughs> Uh-oh. You know, so I can't wait to read that part of of your book to see how how that went down. So, yeah, you've done okay. And so then you're saying how many? You said you said four books. So practicing for love. There will be four four books altogether. The first practice what you practicing preach. for love. Practice what you preach. The third one is practice made perfect. Aha. Uh-huh. And then the fourth is um, my grandmother's letters from the United Kingdom to her parents in Zanesville, Ohio. Mm-hmm. When you yes, started, but... when you started out initially, um, mm-hmm. before you found your grandmother's letters, had you had you mapped out that this needs to be like I want to do it like this section, that section, that section, to sort of like take people along that journey with you? Well, I had just, I'd been journaling for decades and um, I, I wanted really just to put out one book. And then when I started putting everything together and it just turned out that I had enough material for three books. Uh-huh. It, um, you know, and people don't really want books that are much longer than 400 pages. That's That's pretty much the, the maximum, you know, for, for easy reading. So I, um, split them all. They're, they're all around that level around, uh, 400 pages and, um, 
practice what you preach, um, it also goes into it's it's a very personal writing. It's it's mm-hmm. much more personal than than the first book. And uh, you know, when I talk about the producing the film, that's really the bulk of the professional stuff in the in the manuscript. But later, I um, I describe an affair I had with an African diplomat. And that brings up a lot of issues that I, I just had no idea. Um, uh-huh. my, my first, you know, hands-on contact with uh, a West African culture, and I just, I wasn't prepared for the, the level of sexism uh-huh. and some of the, um, the anti-Americanism um, and the, the closetedness, the homophobia, it was really, and this was a diplomat who was at the United Nations. And it really surprised me how backwards some of the thinking was, even though mm-hmm. there, there was money, you know, there was, um, a lot of access and, and a lot of travel and the other people in that country were starving and, um, a lot of, um, how to say, just, just conflicts in dealing mm-hmm. with this person, you know, and uh, it's something, and as I was writing it, I was just trying to share what my perspective was and trying to figure all of this out because here this person is saying one thing and behaving in ways that are, that are very different and it, it was very confusing for me and it got to the point where, you know, I, I started noticing some indications of uh, possible uh, childhood sexual abuse. Mm. And I'm just writing this as a spectator. You know, this is what happened, and this is what I thought about it, and this is how I felt. But you know, it's almost like I'm guiding the, the reader through the mystery as, uh, as I'm trying to figure it out myself. So I'm very curious to see what kind of feedback this, uh, this book is going to get. It may alienate some... <laughs> academics, mm-hmm. but um, I, I felt these were issues that really needed to be talked about, and uh, the women in some of these cultures are really suffering, really mm-hmm. suffering, and um, how, who are we to just notice this and, and not say anything about it? Wow. So, that's the next book. Well, I'm, I'm putting it, uh, you, you know, you know, I've got it on my list already. Now, you know that, you know. <laughs> I, <Okay>. guess. <laughs> I know. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, well, we're, yeah. we're going to take our, our second break, and we'll be right back, okay? Okay. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode.
And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. I love that you're writing, Nana. I mean, you know, I mean, and I applaud you for having, you know, you know, part of it, 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 it's, it's beyond courage, you know, to be able to write your memoir, to sort of talk about it. You know, that some of it, you don't know how people are going to react to it. You don't know how the other person is going to, you know, you're talking about you're bringing up issues that you've confronted, you've seen, and maybe you didn't have the answers at that time. But it's important that, that you're going to do it. Did you have any trepidation when you said, I'm going to write a memoir? I'm going to put myself out here, okay? And it's one thing to do an interview, but it's going to be in books at people's mm-hmm. house. And they're going to be reading it, maybe highlighting parts, you know, telling mm-hmm. people that they need to read the book. Did you have a moment of pause before you said, no, I'm going to do this? And why? Did you say, you know, take that gulp, pick up your pen, and start writing? Well, I was really thinking in terms of what kind of legacy I would leave behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, um, I mean, I was always hungry for for autobiographies and memoirs, and I was always frustrated that. Um, Gertrude Stein, for example, didn't write so much about her personal life. And I felt that I was writing the kind of material that I would have wanted to read. You know, um, Maya Angelou's autobiographies were were very influential. Um, But her intimate experiences were only with men. And uh, I I even noticed a a little bit of... um, uh, homophobia in uh, in one of her books. I'm trying to mm-hmm. remember. It may have been singing and swinging and getting married like Christmas. I think mm-hmm. it, it wasn't as popular as as the first two books, but um, but I wanted I wanted to leave a perspective, a woman's perspective, um, trying to maneuver in in the sexist field. And um, just sharing, you know, just honestly sharing what my experiences have been. And I know other women out there can relate. You know, I mm-hmm. know they've had similar experience and, and they just um, haven't been able to, uh, to acknowledge it. And in some cases, even admit it to themselves. You know, sometimes it isn't until you see the written word about somebody else's experience that you're able to say, oh, wait a second, the same thing happened to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much more time I have on this earth, but I hope that with the rest of the time I have, I'm, uh, I'm able to leave enough material for, for young women to be able to, uh, to look at my books and read my books and to feel that their experiences are validated. And these books that that will make me happy. Mm-hmm. Exactly, you know. I think that that's so uh, so important. We have so many mediums now that not only you can you know you can write, you know, they can see you. Someone who who is thinking, I mean, can I do this? You know, musically to hear you, to know, to see what you've gone through, and they might be thinking, you know, they might have heard you can't play that. That's not you know, and it doesn't even have to be classical. I mean, I've mm-hmm. heard young young women who say, well, they wanted to sing, you know, 
jazz or whatever, and someone was like, no, you have to look like, you know, whatever is pop, and you have to do this, and you have to put that in there, you know, and if you want to be marketable. And, you right. know. And if a man you, is trying to tell you, you have to come to his hotel room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and so many of these girls have this experience, and then the, the shame that results from it, it keeps them, half the time it keeps them from even reporting what's happened. And mm-hmm. it happens so often. There's so mm-hmm. many abuses of power in the music business. It's just, it's a, it's a hotbed, for lack of a better word, for, um, mm-hmm. for these kinds of, of of things. And it's uh, it's really sad. I mean, it, I I just want to shine as much of a light on it as I can because mm-hmm. so many people we're not we're not told how to prepare ourselves for these these incidents when they happen, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, young women have to be prepared. You know, you don't, you don't go mm-hmm. to a, a man's hotel room alone. You just don't have to. As much as he tries to force you, it's it's not, no contract is worth that. And, you know, and to, to do what you love, you mm-hmm. know, and and how do you measure, I mean, to have a career, <laughs> you don't have to have a one hit wonder where maybe you'll make a whole lot of money and everybody will siphon it off, but to have a career so that, you know, there's nothing that says that after you hit a certain age, oh, well, now what's the new flavor of the month? No, to have mm-hmm. a career, to hone your craft, to do what you love, and to keep embracing new things. You embrace different music, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and I have to thank you when I was doing my I think it was the second thing that I did on the BIPOC voices, BIPOC queer voices, and I sent them like two videos of you. One, you were doing, you know, uh, what is it, red? Is it red, white, and blue? Yeah. Uh, blue, white, and red, yes. Blue, white, and red, okay. And then right, right mm-hmm. after that, here you're walking and, you know, playing lit, and they're like, oh, my God, she did both. I've had so many people comment that you did that. And the fact that you em- you are able to embrace creativity and music, where how often do you hear people say, well, you know, and the judge says, well, you know, I can't do anything with millenniums, millennials, or I don't listen to that kind of music, or I don't hear this, and they don't know about someone who might be really great, but it's in a different genre than they, than they feel comfortable with. But you embrace so much. It's like if, if it's creative, you're going to give it a shot. You're going to listen to it, and if it works for you, you're there. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, kids need to be exposed. You know, if you, you mm-hmm. speak their language, maybe give them an opportunity to hear something that they wouldn't have heard under normal mm-hmm. circumstances. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like the traditional white classical music world is reading reaching out to these kids. You know, mm-hmm. they're, it's like they live in a bubble. They uh, they just, you know, that, that um, white tower mentality, you know, they just don't care if, uh, if kids are exposed or not. And, and it matters very much to me that these kids get a chance to, to hear this music because some of them just wouldn't even have the opportunity otherwise. And you never know. Mm-hmm. They, they may become a fan. Those kids in a few years may end up in the audience at the Metropolitan Opera. You never know. Mm-hmm. You know. 
or, or you might go in there and you'll see them and they'll say, you know what? I read your book. I saw you do this. And that's why I said, you know, I decided I was going to write this out for it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> why, yes, I did have that influence on <laughs> you. <laughs> oh, so, mm-hmm. um, any regrets? Regrets? Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Well, let's see. I mean, it's uh, not so much for things I've done as what I wasn't prepared for. Mm -hmm. And I really don't know how I could have had access to uh, some of the information that I didn't have when I was, when I was growing up, my parents were kind of, you know, they, they kept their heads in the sand about certain things and, um, how to say, I just, I wish I could have been more prepared for mm-hmm. what I was about to, to come into contact with. You know, I think it would have made things easier. It would have made things easier if I just had a sibling. <laughs> that would have mm-hmm. helped out a lot, you know, mm-hmm. but um, to just have a, a more realistic view of what was in store. Um, like we were talking about earlier, with, like going into a man's hotel room hotel room nobody told me that you shouldn't do this kind of thing i mean i i I wrote in the first book practicing for love about another african diplomat who would fly in and out of new york he was at at the mission here at the united nations and whenever he was in town he'd try to get me in his hotel room and he supposedly was uh um, was claiming to want to uh, schedule a concert tour for me in Africa. And, uh, you know, all of this talk, knowing that this would pique my interest. But the bottom line was, all he wanted was for me to show up at his hotel. Uh-huh. So, you know, and, and, af- and whenever I, I refused to go to the hotel, you know, and I would mail him information and uh, give him whatever was needed for the contracts, it was just, it became clear that uh, he was just interested in having me in his hotel room. <laughs> that was it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are, these are things that, um, that I had to learn as I, as I went mm-hmm. along, but at least I've documented it for future generations. So, they can uh, have an idea of what what to expect. Let's hope that these issues will just be a part of the past at some point. But right now, they're still very much um, major issues that we have to contend with. Unfortunately, well, you know, I think that that's the, that that is so perfect because it's one thing if you have regrets and it's like, oh, I I could have, should have, would have. But what you've done is you talk about it. I mean, you know, you didn't know. So you've got to, right. I mean, and as I did, so that someone else who doesn't have a sister, a friend, or someone who may, but who's interested in, in the same things that you are, may read your book and go like, oh, wow. Or they'll hear about it, you know, or we'll start having those conversations. You know, if you have a regret, you don't do something about it, you know. Mm-hmm, Even mm-hmm. if it's just like talking about it, that is just, it's such a loss. So, okay, now last time I talked to you, you were talking about going back to Europe. Um, is that mm-hmm. still on the, on the plan? Thinking about it, yes. Uh, we had mm-hmm. such a lovely time in uh, in Vienna where we 
shot that last music video. Mm-hmm. And we were able to get it done like just before the the pandemic hit, and it took a while to to edit. But that video is still online, and they they invited me to give a concert, but then uh, everything shut down because of COVID. So uh, we're still thinking about that, and uh, maybe filming some more videos while we're over there. Mm-hmm. And that would be a lot of fun. Well, take that big suitcase with space in it for me, okay? Carol, <laughs> <laughs> I can send you a ticket. I can send oh, you a ticket hey. and get you a hotel room. <laughs> oh, oh, that's even better, you know. But hey, you know, uh, I, uh, I, Nina, I mean, when I was in New York, I didn't get a chance to watch uh, Nashing with Nina, um, which I think is cool. Um, I want to watch it. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing you. I want to see you in your natural element. New York. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, the Nashua with Nina show is it's online. So you can go okay. to uh, NashuaNina.tv and all the past episodes are on there. Mm-hmm. And what's your favorite? Oh, my goodness. Favorite <laughs> episode. I, I would have to say the one we filmed in Vienna. Uh-huh. Since we, uh, you know, we were there to do the video, and we took advantage of of being there just to to do a whole show on the city itself, and uh-huh. that was that was a lot of fun. A lot of um, outdoor scenes, and the architecture, and the old cathedral there, the St. Stephen's. It was really, really a fun show. Very informative. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wow. Well, Nina. It has been a joy. Uh, we're going to talk again. I want to let you know that I do have your YouTube video uh, over your playing. I mean, it's just something about it visually is beautiful to me. Okay, I was uh, okay. I was going to. I wanted to play the the piano, but Sister Rose Carmel, <laughs> who always told me I didn't hold my fingers right, you know, there was just like something that she just sort of turned me off of it. But when I watch that video and I watch you play, I think about little Michelle and what she wanted to do on the piano, and it makes my soul sore. And I thank you for that. Thank you. Mm. It's, it's so sweet to hear. Yeah. But um, I'm, and I'm got my books ordered. I'm, I'm waiting to read all of them. And you know, I just enjoy I, I just enjoy talking to you and I thank you for sharing so much of yourself. Well thank you. It's uh it's uh it, it's it, it's cathartic for me, you know, to be able mm-hmm. to feel that um I'm connecting with uh mm-hmm. strangers, people I might not ever meet, but at least, mm-hmm. you know, sharing my experience and my ancestors' experience, you know, in, mm-hmm. in ways that they they wouldn't have have uh, have, have had access to if uh, if I hadn't put this material down. Well, don't stop. Hey, hey, don't <laughs> stop. Don't stop. Well, Nina, I'm going to let you go, but thank you again, and I look forward to talking to you in the not too distant future. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Looking forward to the next time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I want to thank my guest, author, concert pianist, and so much more, Nina Kennedy. Her Lambda Literary Award book, 
Practicing for Love, a memoir, was published in 2020. Practice What You Preach, the second book in this memoir trilogy, will be available soon. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of a show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.